I want you to call to mind the worst, wretched person you can think of. I want you to think of the most evil reprobate, the vilest sinner that you can. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a terrorist. Maybe the person that just popped into your head is a powerful dictator. Some of you may have had politicians come to mind. There may have been some family members that top the, the list in your life. Do any of you consider yourself? Do you echo as Paul did? That he, as Paul said, that he is the foremost of sinners? Do you recognize that you are or were a follower of the devil, fundamentally opposed to God and living in such a way that brings his just wrath upon us? Whoever you thought of, be it the terrorist, dictator, politician, family member, yourself, would you say that that person deserves God's justice? And would you say that that person, whoever they be, no matter how wretched, could receive God's mercy? Our passage this morning is going to highlight the interaction between a repentant wretch and God's justice and mercy. I think we'll be greatly convicted and encouraged as we consider what our narrative has to show about God's character. So turn to 1 Kings chapter 21. And I know that in the past I've taken us to the Old Testament and then I've preached 80-minute sermons. I have been reminded of that many times. Don't worry, that's not my plan this morning, but we'll see how the Lord moves. 1 Kings 21. Look at verse 17. We're going to just talk through this passage and then consider some implications. 1 Kings chapter 21. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. This is verse 17. Saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, who's the king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone down to take possession of it. Now we've got to pause just for a moment here and ask what has happened. Ahab, who is the current king of Israel, the northern tribes at that point in time, okay, is in Samaria, which is the seat of power of those northern tribes. And he has taken a vineyard of Naboth, a man named Naboth. This was not a happy transaction. Many of you are probably familiar with it. Naboth wanted this vineyard. He thought it would make a good garden near his house. He wanted the vineyard. He went and he offered Naboth a fair price. But as was absolutely his right, Naboth refused because he said, look, I don't want to sell the land that my, that, that my God has given to my family perfectly legitimate refusal even of a king, basing that in the Lord's ways and his instructions for Israel. Ahab, instead of just accepting that refusal as perfectly reasonable 
and right, went and pouted in his house. And his wife, Jezebel, everything that comes to your mind when you hear that name is true, okay? His wife, Jezebel, comes in to him and says, why are you pouting? He says, Naboth won't give me my vineyard. And she says, what, what kind of a king are you? You don't understand, Ahab. Kings don't ask. And kings don't take no for an answer. So she says, basically, Ahab, you big baby, just sit there. I'm going to go take care of this for you. And she sends a letter and has the, the leaders of Naboth's town arrange a feast where he then is falsely accused of blasphemy. And they take him out and they stone him. He's dead. And she conveniently takes care of his sons as well. Clears the way for Ahab to come in and take possession of a garden. That's the way of Ahab and Jezebel as a couple. They want something. A few measly lives shouldn't stand in the way of a king's desire for a garden. And so they go and they take it. So what we find is after that whole occurrence, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah, one of his prophets in the land at that time. And he says, get up, go down from where you are to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who's in his ruling area, Samaria. Behold, he is currently in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone down to take possession of it. So this is, this is right on the heels of that occurrence. Jezebel comes back and says, Hey, Ahab, it's yours. Yes, vineyard. So he walks out and he enters into his vineyard. Maybe he's going to meet his royal gardener and they're going to make some plans for how to put this land to use in his garden. So God says to Elijah, Go meet this king Ahab. He's in the vineyard, and you shall speak to him in verse 19. It says, you shall speak to him, saying, thus says the Lord, the prophetic declaration of divine utterance. Have you murdered and also taken possession? The word for murdered there is even just the word slaughtered. A man utterly undeserving, just brutally killed. There was no time, there was no time for Elijah to have heard this. This is God, the, the divine sovereign, stepping into Ahab's life via the, the prophet Elijah and saying, Ahab, I know every word and every situation in life that occurs. And I know that you have slaughtered and gone to take possession of this vineyard. Now, Jezebel was a significant part of that, but Ahab is going to be held responsible for that. So continuing on in verse 19, and you shall speak to him saying, thus says the Lord, you've got to make sure Ahab knows where this is coming from, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, okay, so outside the walls, that's where he, they'd taken him out to stone him, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. So that's, that's the divine message. Now, Elijah and King Ahab don't have a good relationship. <laughs> this is not buddy-buddy 
You know, they go and they have dinner together on a regular basis. Ahab is, as we're going to find out, an evil, evil king who is on record as being one of the worst. And Elijah has regularly gone and confronted him about that. And it never has gone well. Ahab always rejects him, seeks to push him away, seeks to kill him, Jezebel, the same way. And so Elijah then gets this message And it's supposed to go tell the king who just allowed and condoned three people's murder so that he could have a garden. And he's supposed to go tell him, you are a murderer and a thief. And the consequences of that, the justice that God will mete out for that, is going to be the fact that where the the, the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth outside the city walls, they will lick up your blood, O king. Imagine how that message will be received. This is not an exciting thing, I'm sure, for uh, Elijah to anticipate having a say. And so, Elijah goes down. Naboth is currently in the vineyard getting ready to take possession, making plans for his garden. Elijah, I believe, walks in, and he probably goes, Oh, are you kidding me? I, I read that in between the comma and the quotation mark. He says, have you found me, oh my enemy? Now, if you remember, this is is the cry of a self-justifying, self-centered, self-pitying fool of a man who said the same type of thing when Elijah said that there's going to be a drought for three years. And the king blames Elijah and says, oh, you're a troubler of Israel. Ahab's always deflecting, saying, well, it's your fault, your fault, and refusing to acknowledge his own evil and his own sin. So Ahab says to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? Probably thinking, I, I just walked in the vineyard. How did you come to be here? Elijah answers, verse 20, I have found you. And why have I found you? Because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. What we find is that Ahab was not a momentary transgressor. This was a pattern. He did not just murder and steal But we find that, first off, he married Jezebel, which was wrong. He served Baal, built a temple to him, and and served him vigorously to the the detriment of the people because he led them in that. If we read in 1 Kings 16, verse 33, it says, Ahab also made the Asherah which are items of pagan worship. And then the, the verdict here, thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Ahab had sold himself wholesale to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Remember I was asking you to think of of an evil person, of someone who had a reputation for vileness and wrong. 
this guy is at the top of the list. It's not just, not just a, a momentary sinner or, you know, a, a guy with a somewhat spotty record. His record is just painted black before the Lord. He and Jezebel had killed Yahweh's prophets in chapter 18 such that they were the, one of Ahab's servants had to go and, and just take some of the remaining prophets and hide them in a cave because Ahab was persecuting his prophets so viciously. And so in light of that, in light of this, this wretch and his sin and his wholesale giving of himself over to evil, God says this in verse 21, Behold, I will bring evil upon you, and I will utterly sweep you away. And I will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and because you have made Israel sin. So we find here that because of this, this wretch and his vileness, his evil, God is going to bring about justice. God is going to bring about consequence. Ahab is not going to, uh, to, to avoid consequences, to just get off scot-free. God is aware Ahab hasn't been able to be sneaking around God. And look at the language of verse 21. God says, I will utterly sweep you away. It's not just, Ahab, I'm going to smack your hand and hope you learn a lesson. This is, Ahab, your evil is so much that you are going to be utterly swept away. And in fact, this is going to have ramifications on your whole family and lineage and descendants. I will cut off from Ahab Every male, both bond and free in Israel. This is the idea that there is no escaping the consequence. There is no, there's no plea bargain for the consequences of the justice of God. And then it says in verse 22, I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. I read those the first time and I was like, okay, I don't know anything about those. <laughs> Maybe he was supposed to know something. If you go back, I'll tell you what, this rang a serious bell in Ahab's mind. And I put together a little chart for you just to help. Oh, you can hardly read that, can't you? All right. Well, trust me, at the very top is Jeroboam, okay? I can't read it back there. Um, so at the very top is Jeroboam, whose son was Nadab. So what we read here is that God is going to make Ahab's house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, okay? So Jeroboam's at the top there. He is a vile wretch, and has actually promised these same consequences. And so what we find is that Jeroboam's son, Nadab, is killed by Basha. And in killing Nadab, he doesn't just 
kill Nadab, he wipes out every male in the family of Jeroboam. Okay, so that consequence comes to be in that generation right there. So Basha, the one who has brought that consequence over the house of Jeroboam, has his son Elah, who is then killed by Zimri. And again, it is not just Elah. It's every male descendant from Basha. Okay, so this king and his family, wholesale consequence and death by this king and his family, wholesale consequence and death by Zimri, who only reigns for like two days because then Omri comes along and kills him. What a, what a ruling system, huh? Omri comes and wipes out Zimri and sits on the throne, and Omri's son is Ahab. The last two ruling families of the northern tribes were given this exact same promise. And the execution of that promise was real and stark and a severe warning of God's seriousness when he says, I am going to bring consequences for evil. All right, so you, you, can, you can read behind and you can read ahead in First Kings and see how all this plays out, but I'll, I'll leave that there for a moment just so you can consider that. So this is not just some sort of Hey, consider, you know, 600 years ago, this fable of these one, this one king who had done evil and he got consequences. No, this is, like, this is like, hey, remember the family before yours? They got the same promise and I wiped them out. Do you remember the family before that and their sin and how they defied me and led my people astray? I gave them the same promise and I executed it upon them. This is God's justice for sin. And it's a, it's a personal deal. Look back in verse 22. Because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger, you, Ahab, has provoked God to anger on a personal level and on a corporate level he has made Israel to sin. So God takes this very seriously. And then he, he makes it clear through Elijah that he's not... Absolving Jezebel at all, either. Look in verse 23. Of Jezebel also the Lord has spoken, saying, The dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. I apologize for that mental image, but that's what God says. That is the, the depth and the heinousness of sin and, and the pain and the agony and and the fullness of the punishment that a just God brings on evil. And this is actually kind of an escalation if you stop and think about it. As far as like the, um, the degradation of the punishment and the, the negativity of the punishment. Because for Ahab it was the dogs will lick your blood in the same area, the same way that they licked up the blood of Naboth. And and yet Jezebel is not the dogs are going to lick up your blood, but the dogs will eat Jezebel. And we find 
that to be true. That Jehu, you know, if you just continue that line down and over a little bit, Jehu ends up caring about that execution on Jezebel, and she gets thrown out of a window, and he goes in to have a a, um, a triumphant supper, and by the time he comes out to actually bury Jezebel, the dogs have eaten her down to her hands and her skull. It's in the Bible. But it's a graphic illustration of the seriousness that God takes sin and the consequences that his justice will meet out. And then he gives a very formal, very formal indictment here in verse 24. Look with me. The one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, so this is descendants, the dogs will eat. And the one who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat. All right, look back with me real quick. Flip back, 1 Kings chapter 14. Just so, just so we're aware that this is not made in a vacuum. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 11. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And he who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat. For the Lord has spoken it. Basha carries that out. Look over in chapter 16, verse 4. Anyone, 16 verse 4, anyone of Basha who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And anyone of his who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat. Does that sound oddly familiar, vaguely familiar to what has just been pronounced upon Ahab? It's word for word. And so this is, why, this is why I say to you that this was, this was a, a tremendously indicting statement that, that, was, that was crystal clear in Ahab's mind because he had seen to one degree or heard about to another the carrying out of that execution upon those two families. That is how evil Ahab had been and that is the the seriousness that God looked upon that sin and sought to and planned to bring about justice. Just in case we missed it, verse 25. Now, if you notice, this, this, in the midst of narrative, this kind of pulls out, right? And this is one of the important things to look at when you're reading narrative, is this is not Elijah speaking. This is not Ahab speaking. This is the, the narrator sort of pulling out of the, the sequence of events for a moment and giving divine perspective. And that divine perspective is this, verse 25. As, as if we didn't know this, the narrator has to make sure we see that surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. Pull the car over. Consider your spouse very carefully. And I say that partially in jest, but partially very serious also. 
right? The, the influence and sway that a spouse can have is tremendous. If you think about the wisest man, Solomon, a serious aspect of his downfall was who he married. And so here we see that, that surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord, and his wife had a serious role in that evil. So this is not the point of the text, but a tangential implication of it is be careful of who you choose as a spouse. Verse 26, he acted very abominably. I mean, it's, it's just so interesting. Just slow down. He could have said he just acted abominably. And abominably is a bad word. It's not like the abominable snowman, which turns into the cute little cartoon movies, you know, where we're all rooting for the abominable snowman. This is abominable in the sense of distasteful, heinous, uh, ugly, filthy. So not only did he act that way, but he acted very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done. The, the, the people who had lived in the land and their pagan religions, their sin had been so bad that the Lord cast them out before the sons of Israel. If you remember, God told Abraham, you're going to have this land, but you're going to have to wait because your people have to go and live in a different land for a set period of time because the iniquity of this people in this land is not yet complete. And so God uses Abraham's sojournings and Jacob's and Isaac's and Jacob's and then Jacob and the whole family's time in Egypt not only to grow the people into a nation but to allow the iniquity of the Amorites and the sinners and the, and the, and the peoples of Canaan just to get to such a level that the invasion of Canaan was a just recompense for their sin. And that's how Ahab acted. Ahab had, had full on even forgotten why God had allowed them, one of the reasons that God had allowed them to drive out the people who had lived in that land and to, and to, and to kill them and to put them to death. So when we're talking about people who are evil in our thinking, right at the top of that list is a man like Ahab, sold himself to do evil. Before him, there was no king who was evil like him. I mean, that's, that's a serious indictment. So did he deserve God's justice? Absolutely. Absolutely. And God had laid out that justice before Ahab in a very clear, very poignant way. But then the second question that we had asked was would a person like that, could a person like that receive God's mercy? Which is a harder question sometimes to answer. Not necessarily factually, but even in our own hearts. I have been so bad that I could not possibly be the recipient of God's mercy. This person has been so bad, there is no way that God's mercy could extend to him or to her. Right? Those thoughts, I think, if we're honest, there's a wrestling match. 
whether it's in, in, our, in our actual practice or in our own thinking. But it is so instructive to continue to read and to see in verse 27 how Ahab responded. It came about when Ahab heard these words. This is that, he's talking about verse 21 to 24, saying, I'm going to bring evil upon you. I will utterly sweep you away. I'm going to cut off your family just like I did the house of Jeroboam, just like I did the house of Basha because of the provocation with which you've provoked me. And I'm also going to bring this death consequence upon Jezebel. So it came about, verse 27, when Ahab heard these words, that he tore his clothes This man who sold himself to do evil tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted. And he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. It's an amazing reaction from a man who in the past had been so recalcitrant to the admonitions of God. There's going to be a drought for three years. Elijah, you troubler of Israel, why have you brought this drought upon us? Well, you missed that message, didn't you? Here, he hears this message of sin and consequence, and his response is abject acceptance of that reality, humility before God as judge and the one who justfully brings about those consequences. And his response is to tear his clothes. So he tears his royal robes and then he replaces them with the attire of of a grieving penitent beggar, sackcloth, and he fasts. It's a response of humility. He lay in sackcloth and he went about despondently. Now, was Ahab saved? I I really don't think so. Okay, in the sense of 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 a real faith in the Lord, because if you read the next chapters, ooh, he goes right back. To all, all, the, all the ways that had been described of him before, even up until his death. He even says about the, the, the prophet Micaiah, oh, I hate that prophet. He always actually speaks God's word to me, and it's never what I want to hear. You know, so that kind of a thing tells me that he probably wasn't saved. But he was familiar enough with the history of Yahweh's words to take it seriously as reality. He he understood that when God pronounced judgment upon sin, like he had just done for Ahab, God meant business. God was not messing around. God was not some some warm and fuzzy guy in the sky who just likes to, to kind of, you know, give good things and sort of turn a blind eye to all the evil things. God was the sovereign who looked at the king and said, you are evil and your consequences are these. But Ahab responded in humility. Look at, look at verse 28. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, do you see 
how Ahab has humbled himself before me? It's almost a, Elijah, look at that. We just pronounced this judgment and Look at this. He has humbled himself before me. Now, this idea of humbling is interesting. Okay? It is just a, it is a, an abject recognition of the superiority and the sovereignty of God such that you respond with the awareness that he has the right okay, to rule and to pronounce judgment. And he has the right to bring those consequences about or to not bring them about. It's the phrase of humbling himself that Solomon prayed when he consecrated the temple. And he said, look, when, we are, when we're scattered from here because of our sins, if we humble ourselves, then the Lord will turn and hear our cry and heal our land. That's that idea. Okay? Sin, consequences, God brings about those consequences even so that his people will humble themselves. When Hezekiah had a pronouncement upon him of his coming death, he humbled himself before God. And Hezekiah was, was actually a good king, but he humbled himself before God and God healed him and extended his life. So there is a, there is a, a both a promise and a pattern in God's dealings with Israel that humbling yourself before the Lord as God and sovereign produces a response from the character of God. Because, look at verse 29. God says, do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days. But I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. God's word will come true. God's promised consequence will come about. But even in his justice, for this wretch of all wretches, God shows amazing astounding, undeserved personal mercy. Mercy to a man who, unlike anyone else before him, had sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. I think in the midst of looking at that text, we've seen and can come away with three lessons on God's justice and mercy. And the first lesson is this, never doubt God's justice. I think we need to think about that from from two different perspectives. The first is, are you a victim of injustice from around you? Like Naboth? He was a victim of severe injustice at the hands of one who should have been in an effort to honor the Lord, seeking to bring about justice and peace. And yet Naboth was murdered and his property stolen, his sons killed. But it was seen. It was witnessed. And God brought about justice. Wait and trust 
Justice will, justice for evil will happen either now or in eternity. And so even in the midst of possibly being treated unjustly, we must wait and trust for God who is the judge, God who is the one who sees, God who is the perfectly just one to bring about justice. Are you a perpetrator of injustice and wrong? I mean, Ahab's an extreme example, right? But are you a perpetrator of injustice? Lying, stealing, cheating, I don't, you name it. You need to know that God witnesses and that he will exact justice. Whether it's now or in eternity, that's up to the Lord. But the, every, every aspect of justice will be satisfied. So as, as believers particularly, we must never doubt God's justice. As unbelievers, if you don't have faith in Christ, you must never doubt God's justice. And that should forewarn you that you cannot escape God's justice. But then lesson number two is this. Marvel at God's mercy and avail yourself of God's mercy. I am just amazed and I, and I think that's one of the reasons that it's in the text. You know, the narrator is describing what happens. And, and it's evident in the life of Ahab what happens. But then there is that description. It should be like a blinking light. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. He acted very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done. Whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel. That's a divine insertion of a summary of the character of Ahab to then highlight in just tremendous contrast his response. Of humility saying, God you are right. I have been this way. I see your justice. I know that it is true. And then God gives Ahab personal mercy, even while executing justice on his house and his family. See, we marvel at and we avail ourselves of God's mercy because none, hear this, none are beyond the mercy of God. Not the worst terrorist. Not the filthiest beggar. Not the cruelest dictator. Not the slimiest politician. Not your family member who has been so inhumane in the past. Not even you or I are beyond God's mercy. It's available, it's full, and it's unending. The ESV translates Lamentations 3, 22 to 23 like this. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Never doubt God's justice. Marvel at and avail yourself of God's mercy and then speaking of faithfulness, be assured of his faithfulness. Be assured 
of and by his faithfulness. See, God has assured people that he will respond certain ways if we respond to him in certain ways. That was one of the things that he described in the Old Testament covenant. Look, no matter where you're at and what you've done, if you humble yourself before me, I will hear your cry. That was a promise. Even Ahab received mercy when he responded according to God's character, according to what God had promised, according to what God has said. And so if we put it in our thoughts right now, God promises that no matter how wretched, no matter how vile our life and our sin is, if there is repentance, he will grant forgiveness. Be you the, 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 the person with the, the blackest record, criminal record on the planet, the worst social background ever, the dirtiest moral history in the world, it doesn't matter. God's mercy is available because he has said so. If you're feeling like an Ahab this morning, know that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And that's a problem that God, uh, that's a promise rather, that God will never fail in. That is his faithfulness. His justice exists in this idea because he poured out the punishment for your sin on his son on the cross. The cross where love Mercy and justice meet in perfect satisfaction. So if you repent and believe in him and in his death and in his resurrection and in his lordship, then you can be assured of his mercy towards a repentant wretch. So that's instructive, I think, for your heart as you sit and consider your own life. Now again, Ahab, as we'll find, once he hears of the, uh, the mercy upon his life, he gets up and then he goes back and lives the same way. And it doesn't go well for him. And so this is not, the, 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 the promise of God in the mercy that I speak of in salvation is not, a, is not a pray a prayer and then go back to life and everything will be okay. But it is a promised faithful response of God's mercy and forgiveness to a genuine converted repentance turning from sin and towards God and saying, Jesus, I believe you're the son of God, that you died on the cross and took the penalty that I deserve for my sin, and then you raised from the dead, and because of that, you reign as Lord now, and I will live for you. That response, no matter what, has happened in your past will bring about faithful mercy and the satisfaction of God's justice. And that is so encouraging, depending on who you are as you sit there. If you're feeling like Ahab, know that that's available to you right now. Right now. And that's also instructive, I think, for our own thinking 
as we view people around us, whether it's in the news or on TV or in the neighborhood or on the, on the street corner or whatever the case, to say, I don't care how wretched that person is. God's mercy is available to him, her, should he repent. And that's what I need to pray for. That's what I need to speak towards. And that's what I need to seek for them. Even Ahab received mercy. 